Good morning. He's risen. risen well, last year we instituted a little bit of a, a tradition uh, that has a redneck spin to it. And uh, some of us may reply uh, when you say, when you hear, he is risen. You may say, he is risen indeed. Some of us whose genetic bloodline may go in a different direction may reply, dang straight. And so... Patrick has already greeted me this morning, very early. He has risen, and he said, dang straight. And so we may hear about three of us with that reply, and that is totally okay, because he is risen, and uh, and, and that is that's okay. Um, let me pray for us, and then we're going to get to work, okay? Father, we give thanks to you today for this, the most holiest of days. Um, this day is the day. This is the epicenter of everything that defines who we are. And Lord... I pray, I beg you, that now, among your people, Holy Spirit, you would do a work of building faith, strengthening and hardening faith and resolve, and cause your people to persevere in the faith. And I pray, Father, that you would come against all things that attack and seek to weaken and destroy that faith. I pray you win that war today and create great joy among your people. And God, let there be an outlet to the nations from this. We pray for your glory and for our joy. Amen. This morning we're going to talk about proofs of the resurrection. And back in February when I began thinking about this Sunday and in the midst of what we're studying through outside of Resurrection Sunday, I wanted to put for you some resources. If you're following along, looking at the notes on the blog, um, I commend five resources to you. A couple of these are really big boy resources, and I mean that in the sense of it won't be an easy read, but it will be worth your time. N.T. Wright's work, The Resurrection of the Son of God. Um, I actually put a hyperlink there to an article written in 1974 by Edwin Yamauchi on uh, the historical reality of the resurrection, William Lane Craig. Uh, but then uh, Lee Strobel's got some work in there that will be worth your time. Before we launch into the proofs of the resurrection, I want to take you through some things that are very important for us to understand. And the first thing is, I'm going to ask the question, what is resurrection? First, it's important that we understand that resurrection is not revival to life. Understand that the ancient world and even the Bible itself speak about folks who died and came back to life. Dying and coming back to life is revival, not resurrection. The difficult thing about revival, being revived to life, is that the revived person has to die again. Right? When the Bible speaks of resurrection, it speaks about being resurrected to life that is different. It's supernatural. A life that will never again have to taste death. Resurrection is completely, totally, and utterly unique to Christianity. Resurrection is also not life after death. As Christians, we believe that when a person dies as a follower of Jesus Christ, having placed their trust in His justifying death in their place for their sin, and having repented of their rebellion, and thus, by the work of God, And Jesus having exchanged their guilt for his perfection, the believer is ushered directly to be with Christ. This intermediate state is a spiritual state in which the person is with Christ while their body decays in the ground. This 
is life after death. Their body is dead, but their soul is alive and well with Christ. See 2 Corinthians 5. And by the way, if you're following along, there are oodles and oodles of passages. And I'm not going to be able to read all of them to you. But they're there for you to go and read and enjoy those passages. If a person dies, though, without having trusted in the rescue and missionary work of Jesus, we as Christians believe that person will be buried to decay and their soul will go directly to a hell that was created for Satan and his angels. As Christians, we believe that there will be a resurrection of all men in which followers of Jesus Christ will be reunited with a new body in a recognizable way. A body that will never die. A supernatural body. An immortal body. And we will dwell with the creator of the universe, Father, Son, and Spirit, in creation regained forever. However, those not following Jesus also will be resurrected and reunited with their non-redeemed body and cast in the lake of fire with Satan and his angels for an eternal conscious punishment for the rebellion that was started in the garden in Genesis 3 and inherited from Adam as God warned Adam would happen. Life after death simply states that there is something after a person dies. Resurrection is different. Resurrection states that there is life after Life after death. To quote N.T. Wright, resurrection is death's reversal. Let me give you some contrast to help you see the uniqueness of resurrection to Christian doctrine. Many ancient cultures believed in life after death. And they sought to prepare their departed loved one for life after death, right? Because they buried them with resources they would need in that life. But these cultures denied resurrection. According to N.T. Wright, the idea of resurrection is denied in ancient paganism from Homer all the way to the Athenian dramatist Aeschylus who wrote, and this is a quote from Aeschylus, this is crazy. Once a man has died and the dust has soaked up his blood, there is no resurrection. But Here's what's crazy. Christianity was born into a world where its central claim was believed to be false. Let me say that again. Christianity was born into a world where its central claim was known and believed to be false by everybody else around them. Many believed that the dead were non-existent and outside of Judaism, nobody believed in resurrection. To take it a step further... The idea of a system of beliefs, central figure, particularly Jesus, who claimed to be God, dying and rising to die no more, is even more unique. Some have claimed that Christianity borrowed the idea of resurrection from other belief systems. This couldn't be more inaccurate. And here's a great little nugget for you from Yamauchi's article written in 1974. There is no possibility that the idea of a resurrection was borrowed because there is no definitive evidence for teaching of a deity resurrection in the mystery religions prior to the second century. In fact, it seems the other religions and spirituality stole the idea of resurrection from Christians. That's huge, historically. Yet this is what the authors of Scripture do. 
They put forward Jesus' resurrection not only as the climax of Jesus' work, but they proclaimed the resurrection as a historical fact in time, in space, with eyewitnesses. This is crazy. Now listen to what Luke says in Luke chapter 1, verse 1 to 4. Do you understand how unique resurrection is to Christianity? Do you, are you getting the picture? This is not an idea borrowed from any other concept. As a matter of fact, the idea of life after life after death was totally denied. By every culture around Christianity. Yet, the authors of Scripture come. And this is their central claim. That the central person of our faith was dead, but he rose and is alive to never die again. Totally unique claim. Listen to what Luke says in Luke 1, 1-4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, have delivered them to us. Eyewitnesses delivered those facts to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have you following along? Certainty. Not even hope. Certainty. Concerning the things you have been taught. Certainty. I mean, above hope. Certainty. You can know these historical facts for certain. So the mission this morning is that in offering evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, you may have that same certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So this morning, I want to invite you to come along to take a look at some biblical, some circumstantial, and some historical evidence for Jesus' resurrection so that you may have the certainty that God would have you have concerning the things you have been taught. You ready? Thank you. It's like, dude, it's like I'm not even sure you believe he's alive, right? It's like, I don't know. I'm not sure. He is risen. Thank you. We've got a few dang straights and a few I'm not sure, but here we go. Number one, Jesus' tomb was not enshrined. Jesus' tomb was not enshrined. Pharisees would care for the tombs of the prophets. And Jesus even rebuked them for their enshrinement of these tombs because they were recognizing these prophets as prophets, yet it was their fathers who killed them, thus condemning their fathers' actions. See Matthew chapter 23. They would enshrine a tomb precisely because the bones of the prophet were there. And the the enshrinement would give the burial site religious value of the major world's religions based on a founder. Only Christianity claims that the tomb of its founder is empty. Judaism looks back to Abraham who died 4,000 years ago and they preserve his his grave at Hebron. Buddhists visit the tomb of Buddha 
in India. Millions of Muslims make the Hajj every year to Mecca and also to Medina to visit the tomb of Muhammad. Yet there is no trace of enshrinement for a tomb for Jesus. Why? Because the claim of the writers of Scripture is that He is alive. There is no enshrinement of a tomb because there isn't one. The evidence points to the fact that Jesus has been raised. He has risen. Thank you. Okay, we need to practice. Y'all, A, far too white this morning for my liking. B, not sure you're engaged. If you hear He is risen or He is alive, it is okay to talk back, right? He is risen indeed, right? He's alive. Thank you. Very good. Very good. Number two, Jesus predicted, Jesus predicted his own resurrection. This was fun. This is fun. And there's, by the way, there's so much more here that could be and probably needs to be expounded upon in each one of these points. So we're not here for two hours, which I would be fine with that. And I know you wouldn't. Right? Because lots of other things to do today. I understand that. But this one is just a nice little introduction to get your mind rolling so you can go and, and think these through. Jesus predicted his own resurrection. In Matthew 12, 38 to 40, Jesus is asked for a sign to prove his identity. And then Jesus tells him no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah, right? He says, as Jonah was three days and nights in the fish, he said, so the Son of Man will be three days and nights in the earth. Note this, in case you haven't before. Jonah was dead. Contrary to veggie tales, Jonah was not alive. Why? Why would he be? He's been swallowed by a fish big enough to swallow him. And not only has he been swallowed by a fish big enough to swallow him, he's there for more than like a few seconds. Three days, three nights. At best, he's drowned. At worst, he's been chomped to death. This is why I hate the ocean. Not on top of the food chain. I don't have gills. I don't have an impermeable... Skin that won't be eaten by stomach acid. Either way, Jonah was revived after three days. It was a miracle. No wonder the Ninevites responded by repenting. This strange looking haggled dude is telling about judgment. The logic may go, I don't want to look like him. Let's repent. Jesus understands this. So Jesus draws the parallel between Jonah's death and revival and his death and superior resurrection. You know, we talk a lot about the gospel in the Old Testament. This is just another example of how the gospel is foretold and looked forward to in Genesis through Malachi. Do not think that the gospel is absent in the Old Testament. It is clear. It is clear. It is clear. Jonah, a man, dies and is revived to go preach repentance to the nations. Anybody tracking yet? Thank you. Very good. Jesus, God incarnate, dies and is resurrected in order to send his church to go and preach repentance to all nations. 
Jesus predicted this would happen. Heck, he even gave us Jonah as a forerunner of what he was going to do. If Jesus predicted his own resurrection and he was not raised, then he would be a false prophet. Yet, the tomb is empty. And Jesus predicted it would be like that. Jesus is alive. Amen is fine. That's okay. You don't have to do his risen indeed. or That's fine. Or dang straight. That's okay. Totally good. Just want you tracking. Number three. Jesus actually died. In John 19, 34 and 35. John writes this down. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. Which, by the way, just pay attention when you read your Bible. These cats are making eyewitness claims. These aren't mythological tales told, written later. We'll get to that in just a moment. These dudes are making eyewitness claims. Do you understand the significance of that? If they're ever proven false, we have nothing. They're putting themselves out as historical eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. This is huge. And listen to what John said. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth. Why? That you also may believe. Jesus was dead, not just passed out. Their entire books... Dedicated to the thesis that Jesus was in a comatose state and in the coolness of the tomb, he revived. But the eyewitness writers of Scripture make no such claim. They tell us he was dead. Jesus was dead. The Roman insurance of death was the equivalent of a special operator putting a double tap in a down combatant's chest to ensure that he is dispatched and can no further hinder the mission. This soldier is a professional soldier. He's doing the same thing because if Jesus is not dead and he is not ensuring that death, it is his head that's going on the platter. So he puts the spear into Jesus' side to ensure that Jesus is dispatched. Jesus was dead. Not only that, John is claiming here to be an eyewitness to this event. Jesus was dead. But what he tells us also is that Jesus was raised from the dead. And John testifies to this as an eyewitness. Jesus is alive. He's alive. He's alive. Number four, Jesus was buried in a tomb that everybody knew of. That is regarding its location. Matthew 27, 57 to 60. We read this. When it was evening... There came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. Why is this important? A known location of Jesus' burial is vital because it removes the argument that somehow Jesus' body was buried in a secret place so that the disciples could claim He was raised when in fact He was not. Jesus was dead. 
Jesus was buried in the tomb of a wealthy man where even the Marys knew of its location. Because we just read they were there sitting opposite the tomb as all these things were happening. Therefore, Jesus' body, for it to be removed by any other way than the supernatural resurrection would be impossible without someone knowing. Jesus' body was not removed. Jesus' body was resurrected. Jesus is alive. Number five. Jesus appeared physically and recognizable. Only resurrected. That is immortal and supernatural. And I've given you oodles of passages here to go and look through. i give you two for an example here. Uh, Luke 24, 31. And their eyes were opened... This is the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus traveled with them. And he's gone from Moses to the prophets, teaching about himself in the Old Testament. And they invite him in to stay. And as the bread is broken, and they're taking a meal with him, their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And then Colossians 1.18. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn, prototokos, the prototype. The firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. This is why it's important to recognize the difference between revival and resurrection. Jesus wasn't revived. Jesus was resurrected. Dead people in scripture who came back to life were not resurrected. They were revived. So that Jesus is the prototokos. The prototype. He is the first one coming back to life after life after death. So that in everything, he is preeminent. He is the first. And later this is important. And we'll get to that in just a moment. Just a moment. This point is very important here. Because what if someone came claiming to be Jesus, but was not Jesus? And his argument was that he looked different now due to the resurrection. What if someone came and made that argument? This could be deceptive, obviously. But this is not what happened. These eyewitnesses recognized Jesus as Jesus. They recognized him. In other words, it was Jesus who was dead. Who was now appearing to his disciples. And Jesus is appearing in such a way that was astonishing. The first one like that. The prototokos. Jesus' resurrected body was real and physical. And it was Jesus. But Jesus' body was a new kind of no sin... No perishing, mortal, powerful, new heaven and earth kind of flow. I wrote this in, it's funny to me, and you're like, I'm probably not sure. It was legit, too legit to quit. (laughs) Hey, hey. (laughs) Some of you catch it, some of you like totally confused because you didn't listen to that kind of music, right? Paul affirms for us in Colossians that Jesus' status in resurrection is the prototokos. The prototype of what is to come for all of His elect who will be raised to life after life after death. And John affirms in 1 John 3, 2 that we will be like Him. This is a great hope of the kingdom of heaven. It is a real, physical reality. New heaven, new earth. Raised to life after life after death. In which sin will no longer reign. And we will be like Him. 
And for those of you who've lost loved ones, and those of us who've buried our parents, and those of us who've buried friends, and those of us who will be buried as well, this is really good news. That we will be like that. That there is no death for them. This is why the scripture uses the phrase, the, the phraseology of they are asleep. Because for the Christian, there is no death. Just this nice little intermediate state before we are resurrected to get a new body like Jesus had. This is why we don't mourn like those who have no hope. Because He was the prototokos. We will be like that. This is exceptionally good news. We don't mourn like people who don't have that kind of hope. Jesus is alive. And He was resurrected with a physical body. He ate food. I'm so glad about that. And he drank with his disciples. He ate with them. He traveled with them. He's alive. And one day we as his people will be raised up to be like him in his resurrection. This is exceptionally good news. Number six. Jesus' resurrection was recorded soon after the resurrection occurred. Now we hit this a little bit earlier because we were studying through 1 Timothy and, and we're still in 1 Timothy. And I, I wanted to show you some, some things there because uh, anyway, it was just sort of a side note. Uh, and so some of you have heard this already, but it bears repeating. Jesus' resurrection was recorded soon after the resurrection occurred. This is a vital point. Because some would argue that the resurrection of Jesus is the folklore created by the early church and that it's folklore, and this folklore was captured in the Gospels as second century documents. This is the kind, kind of stuff you'll read in pop history of Christianity. This is the kind of stuff you'll see. I've said this before on History Channel. So don't watch the History Channel on the resurrection, please. I like the History Channel, but when it comes to the Bible, you need to probably tune that out. There's an agenda there. This position, this theologically left position, has many problems with it. The most vital flaw is the fact that history just doesn't lie. Paul quotes from Luke 10.7 in 1 Timothy 5.18. Meaning that at least, at least, Luke was in circulation prior to the mid-60s A.D. That's 1st century, not 2nd century. Paul was executed in the mid-60s A.D. And if Luke is post-Mark, that is written after Mark, in his writing and research, then Mark was even earlier. Take this slow so you can follow me there. Since these gospel writers did not record the date they wrote, we must locate their writing based on close reading and attention to literary and historical details. So for easy numbers, let's say Luke was written in 60 A.D. To be generous. Just to be generous. Then we're looking at maximum 25 to 27 years since the resurrection event that Luke is writing his history. And we've read Luke 1-4, right? Luke 1-1-4. If Mark is earlier... And most believe it is, and I would agree that it is, then Mark is even earlier than this. You may ask, what does this mean? Who cares? This means that the span of time, and particularly the span of time from the resurrection to its documentation in writing, 
that folklore does not have time to appear. Particularly in the midst of this Acts 8 persecution that's going on in the church. The church isn't writing this stuff down in folklore. Read Acts 8. Soon after Jesus' resurrection, they're being persecuted. People are dying. They are seeking to survive. Survival is happening. And the reason these folks have to survive, you ask, is because they keep preaching that Jesus is the resurrected King of the universe. Jesus' resurrection was recorded soon after His resurrection because He was raised. Jesus is alive. Jesus' resurrection isn't a made-up fairy tale to validate their claims. It is recorded historical fact that these people are eyewitnesses of the risen Christ. He is alive. He is alive. He is alive. Number seven. The earliest creeds of the church celebrated Jesus' resurrection. First uh, Corinthians 15, 3-4. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance while I also received that Christ died according to the Scriptures, and He was buried, and He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. This passage is believed to be the earliest creed in Christianity. It dates... Check this out, to at least 53 to 54 A.D. when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. In this creed, the church celebrates that Jesus has been raised. Why? Because He's alive. He's alive. The earliest creed of the church celebrates this reality. Jesus is alive. Number eight. The resurrection convinced Jesus' unbelieving family to worship Him as God. This is my favorite. It's my favorite one. The resurrection convinced Jesus' unbelieving family to worship Him as God. John 7, 5 says this, For not even His brothers believed in Him. So His brothers are not believers. As a matter of fact... We read in Matthew 12, 46 that on occasion Jesus' family would show up and demand a word with him in order to talk some sense into this carpenter carpenter who's claiming to be God. And in this Matthew 12, 46 passage, Jesus' mom and his brothers come to have a word with him. And they stay outside and their, their absence from being inside is the indicator of where they are. They even want to go in the house with him. They even want to go inside where he's teaching. So they come outside... To where he's at. And they say, do you have him come out? We want to have a word with him. Jesus makes this astounding statement as he looks around the table telling his disciples that they are his mother and brothers. In other words, those believing and following him are his family. Side note, that's us. If you believed in Christ and you've repented of the rebellion, guess who you are? Family of God. The next thing we notice... Jesus' brother James, who was here with with Mama and bros, trying to talk some sense into their brother. James is an elder at the church in Jerusalem. And he writes a letter in the New Testament bearing his name and is one of the first martyred, preaching what? The resurrection of his brother, Jesus Christ, from the dead. 
James doesn't believe. And the next thing we see is James is a pastor at the church in Jerusalem. And he's killed for the faith. Because he's preaching that the brother I didn't believe in is alive. Meaning James saw his brother alive and was converted. You'll die for a lie. Why did James go to his death having not believed, having now believed? Because Jesus is alive. Here's my favorite. This was crazy and deserves a lot more time than I'm going to give it. Jesus' brother Jude is the same thing. Jude was in the gang trying to talk some sense into brother Jesus. Next thing you know, Jude's writing a book bearing his name also. Read Jude very carefully. Just for fun. It's just not even a whole chapter. Right? And Jude says this. Jude 5. If you got your Bible, turn there and kind of read along with me. If you don't, that's fine. Listen, I'm going to read it to you. I'm going to read it slow. Because remember, Jude's trying to talk some sense into brother Jesus. Not even, remember James, I mean, John 7, 5, not even his brothers believed in him. But look at what Jude writes. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus... Who does what? Save the people out of the land of Egypt? Whoa, 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 wait a second. Time out. Jesus saved the people out of the land of Egypt? Who saved people out of Egypt? The God of the Old Testament. Yahweh. What did Jude just do here? Who did he just say the God of the Old Testament is? Jesus. Wait, Jude didn't believe in Jesus. What changed his mind? The resurrection. He is alive. He's alive. He's alive. He's alive. He's alive. And he says afterward, destroyed those who did not believe. Which, by the way, just a little Bible study note. Read your Old Testament through those glasses he just gave you right there. He just gave you an interpretive tool by which you should read the Old Testament. So when you're reading the Exodus story and the Lord leads them out, who did James just say, or Jude just say, led them out? Jesus. Jesus doesn't come into existence at Christmas. He's the eternal God of all creation. He's present. He's the creator. He's the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God. The pre-existent God of the universe who comes and takes on flesh and dies in the place of rebels that He created. And he rises to secure their salvation. And Jude did not believe. Jesus appears to him. He believes. And he preaches this resurrection. And lets everybody know that what my brother was saying is right. He's right. It was him who led the people out of Egypt. Why would James and Jude do that for a dead brother? They wouldn't. Jesus was raised. And they, along with... Old doubting Thomas believed and began to proclaim Jesus as the Christ. Jesus is alive. Last point I have for you here, uh, and then I'm going to give you a couple of implications, is this. When Jesus' resurrection was confirmed by his enemies, turned evangelist, like Paul, and then was affirmed later by contemporary historians such as Josephus. First, 
His resurrection being confirmed by his enemies turned evangelists like Paul. Paul spent his life in zealous fury seeking to extinguish the church. We learn in Luke's history, particularly the early church in the book of Acts, that Paul, who was formerly called Saul, was in charge of putting Stephen to death in Acts 8.1. This Paul, formerly known as Saul, heads out to arrest and crush when Jesus appears to him, the resurrected Christ. He saves him in his elected purpose and glory and sends him to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. The enemy of the cross becomes the proclaimer of the cross. Why? Because he's alive. He's alive. The enemy becomes the evangelist. Why? Because he is alive. Josephus, who's a contemporary of the New Testament writers, and not a Christian, it's vital. When you hear this quote, you understand Josephus is a Jewish historian. He is not a Christian. He's got sort of a sordid history. And there's a lot written about him. And so I would encourage you to go read a little bit about Josephus. To try to help you hear this quotation properly. Don't hear this as him writing as a believer. This is Josephus witnessing to the message of Christ preached by the church in the first century. Which also locates the writing of the Gospels in the first century. It was clear what the church believed. Does that make sense? Did I just lose you there? It was cl- it's clear what the church believed in the first century. There's no doubt. There's no doubt that the church understood and wrote down these things. And the fact that Josephus, a contemporary here, is writing this is huge. Here's what he says. Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man. If it be lawful to call him a man. For he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him. For he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these ten and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians so named from him are not extinct at this day. Jesus is alive. He's alive. Well, what are some results? I've given you, I think, uh, I've given you nine. And I'm not going to go through all nine of them. Just leave them there. And what I've done is Scripture there with no commentary. And here's why. I would love for you to go read these results of the resurrection. And let the scriptures speak. And just let Holy Spirit teach you of the implications for your own life. Because He will do that. I'd love for you to interact with these in your own time of worship. One implication we have here. Number three in the list is we have new birth. We have new birth. John writes about this in, in, in his gospel in John chapter 3. Peter states here, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. How? How are we born again? 
How are we born new? How are we born over? How are we brought from the dead to life? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus' resurrection secures salvation. Jesus' resurrection makes it possible for dead people to be brought to life. And hear that with the right ears. Spiritually dead people who are separated from God because of the rebellion. People who are dead in their trespasses and sins. People who do not know the truth. The resurrection of Christ makes it possible for those who are spiritually dead to receive the new birth, the regenerative work of the gospel, to come to a dead individual, open their blind eyes. They're not looking. Lost people are not looking for Jesus. There are no seekers. They do not seek God. Paul's clear in Romans. Nobody seeks Him. Dead people don't seek. Dead people are spiritually dead and worshiping multitudes of other gods. But the resurrection of Christ makes it possible for a person to be awakened to life. Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. Why? Because you're dead. And Nicodemus is so spiritually dead that he says the most stupid thing a spiritual teacher could say. Am I to crawl back into my mother's womb and be born again? And you're looking, really? How did you get out of Pharisee school, man? Are you serious? And Jesus goes, no, Nicodemus. The wind blows where it wills. But the Spirit, the Spirit will blow at the will of the Father and He brings people to life. You're a teacher of Israel. How do you not understand this? Jesus' resurrection ensures when the gospel is preached, God in His good purposes can take dead people and give them understanding so they can see and savor Jesus Christ. What a glorious reality. That's awesome. And if you're here and believe, it's not because you have superior faith. Know that. It's not because you believed and your friends don't. Don't be so arrogant as to think your faith is superior. It's not. It's a gift. Read Ephesians 2. It is by grace you are saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not as though the works so no one can boast. Christ was raised. And in His resurrection, Holy Spirit is able to take that gospel message and take dead people and bring them to life. So that they, wow, Jesus! What just happened to me? This is the same Jesus I've been hearing my entire life, but something's different now. It's because Holy Spirit regenerated you to life. The resurrection makes that possible. Listen, guys, the power of the gospel lies not in your presentation, you being on your game, or being strategic. God doesn't need strategy. Doesn't mean God's not strategic. Doesn't mean we shouldn't be strategic. The point is, it's not strategy that saves. It's not lights. It's not camera. It's not action. It's not a cool podcast. It is the power of the supernatural gospel and the Holy Spirit's activity to take dead people and raise them to life. In the message of the gospel. It's the gospel that's powerful. And the resurrection makes that possible. It's crazy. 
I was reading a senior paper, like our seniors around here that have to graduate, you gotta write this like 12,000 page thesis and you gotta do an audiovisual presentation to all your teachers and board members and stuff. And they get kind of wigged out about it. So they have to write their paper and turn it into us who like beat it up with red ink and they're like just crucifying their ability to write and all this good stuff because we want them to be good. And, and so they write these papers and I was reading over one Friday evening. And, and just giving them feedback so they can go back and rewrite their paper and, and kind of get things right. And, and, and this, this is crazy. It, it, this happens all the time and it continues to amaze me, the power of the gospel. One most unlikely person you would ever, if you're around here and you know these students, you just not think this, but here's what the kids said. After New Testament class, I believed. I didn't believe, but now I believe. And they never say this stuff. Like, they never come out of the class and go, I think I just became a Christian today. I don't know what happened to me beforehand, but I was raised, I, understand, I know, like I hear the words, but something changed in me today. How does that happen? It's an academic class. Like, I make, I try to make them work some, right? I mean, it's Bible class, but it's not like, you know, just... Get out of jail free academically. You need to learn to write. And there's, you know, there's some intense stuff in Scripture. There's good stuff you need to know and understand. There's background. There's history. There's all kinds of good stuff. But this kid wrote, I believed. How'd that happen? The resurrected Christ came to him at the appointed time. And he opened his eyes so that he could say, see and savor Jesus Christ. And he believed. It has nothing to do with me. Has nothing to do with the academic content of the class. Has everything to do with the resurrected Christ walking up and down the halls of this school, in your workplace, in the streets of Rome, Georgia. And at the appointed time, you preach the gospel, He will raise people to life. He can do that. The resurrected Christ is pulling that off globally right now. New birth. New birth. We have Holy Spirit. Acts 2, 32 to 33. This Jesus God raised up and all those... I'm sorry, this Jesus God raised up and of all... Good Lord. Dyslexia all of a sudden having a heyday. This Jesus God raised up. And of that we are all witnesses. Got it. This Jesus God raised up and of all that we are witnesses. Forget it. Therefore... Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Because of the resurrection of Christ. We now have the glorious counselor Holy Spirit who dwells with us and in us. Jesus said in John 14. It's to your advantage that I go away. Because if I don't go away the counselor will not come to you. But if I go away I will send him to you. He will come to you and he will be with you. Because of the resurrected Christ and His ascension to the Father, He has not left us alone. He has sent His Spirit to be with us and to be in us and to be our counselor and our teacher and reminder of everything He's spoken. The glorious gift of Holy Spirit to be with and in His people is perhaps the most astounding reality we possess today. Jesus, and He does this crazy thing grammatically in John 14. When he's speaking of Holy Spirit, he shifts personal pronoun from he to I. When he says the Holy Spirit will come to you, Jesus goes, I will be with you. What does that mean? It means Holy Spirit is Jesus Christ himself present in you and with you. 
You and I today, if we've repented the rebellion and turned to Christ and believed, it's through the gift of God's grace to us to give us faith. And in giving us faith, He has put His Spirit in us. And Counselor, Holy Spirit, is your constant companion. He is how you can discern good and evil. He is how you understand and know truth. He's the one who tells you what to do in those moments when you're not sure what to do. Those thoughts that are particularly holy, those urgings that are particularly holy, did not come from your flesh or mind. They're the work of the Spirit, speaking and directing and counseling and leading you in the way of life. A supernatural, glorious reality we have because Christ is risen. Let me give you two more and we'll be done. All things work for our good and a multitude of other graces. All things work for our good and a multitude of other graces. If Jesus is dead, then the promise of Romans 8, 28 to 34 is no good. This is what Paul says. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those... Whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? What do we say to that? Well, Paul tells us what to say. If God is for us, who can be against us? First, all things work for our good. Because Jesus is raised. This powerful gospel, Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. Right? It's powerful. It saves. We also learn that this powerful gospel produces for us this glorious reality that God works for our good in all things. All things. All things work for our good. And as a result, since God is for us, there's nothing that can be against you. You understand that the evil one cannot thwart the sovereign God of the universe at work in you? He who began a good work in you may bring it to completion if things work out just right in the day of Christ Jesus. Is that what, is that what it happened? No. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Why? Because that's what he does. He works for your good, will never do anything but work for your good. Even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you will fear no evil. Why? Because he is with you. His rod and His staff, they are a comfort to you. There is no thwarting of the eternal purpose of God in your life if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Nothing. Nothing. And He goes on to say, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's a rhetorical question. Nobody. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who raised, who is raised, and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. The resurrected Christ is raised, seated at the right hand of God, interceding on our behalf. Listen, this is why Paul will say in Romans 8 right here, right? This is the same chapter. You go back up and read the beginning of the chapter. He tells us, when you don't know what to pray, Right? He intercedes for us in groanings too deep for words in accordance with the will of the Father. You don't know what to pray. You know who's praying for you? So the will of God is always being pleaded before the Father 
on behalf of God's elect. So that when you don't know what to ask for, you see in those moments where I'm totally confused, totally don't know what to do, totally stuck, He is interceding on behalf of His elect. That's awesome. That's why you will only get good. You will only get good. Isn't that good news? If it's good for us, He will give it. If it's not, He will withhold it because the resurrected Christ is interceding on our behalf. Do you see that? He who was raised is at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us. Finally, we have Jesus' personal fellowship and protection. I've often wondered, you know, we just are what we are. This is a little side note. I'm going somewhere with this because this is a little personal for me. There's always going to be a pressure for you to be something other than what God uniquely created you to be. Like you need to be like this person. You need to be like that person. You need to be like this person. You need to, there's always that pressure. You know what I'm talking about, right? You feel it, Right? In various ways, whether it be in the workplace, somewhere, just be like this person or be this or be that. But you know, here's the beautiful thing. God uniquely wired you to be who you are. He makes no mistake. Can you tell Moses? Moses said, I can't talk good. And the Lord said to Moses, who made the mouth mute and the ear deaf? Moses, I did that. Got to make mistakes. There's no deaf ear that God's like, oh gosh, I kind of messed up on that one. Excuse me, pardon me. God made deaf ears and he made deaf ears on purpose. made us all unique, wired us differently. But in all that wiring, put together the body, the church, we're all unique and different, but the body has a mission. It's not just to be present locally. We have Jesus' personal fellowship and protection. I think one of the, re- one of the ways reasons God put me on this earth is to be a goad, a prodder to the church in the West to whatever extent I get the capacity to be that. I'm going to spend Wednesday through Friday out in Texas talking a little bit about this, what I'm about to say to you, to a bunch of guys who just aren't doing it. And I think that's why God made me. He put me back in the post-Christian South to be a goad to the establishment. I'm wired in such a way that if it's just normative, there's a good shot I'm not going to be it or do it. It's just kind of the way I'm wired. And that's not bad. It's not innately good. It's just kind of the way I am. But once something lands and I get an understanding of it, it's sort of like I sink my teeth into it and I don't let it go. I can't let it go. This gospel... The body who carries this gospel best. You remember reading First Timothy? The church is pillar and buttress of the truth. Not the missions agency. Not the nonprofit, Not the school. The church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. The most lean, should be lean, capable mission sending agency on the face of the planet is the church of Jesus Christ. The church has been given charge of the Great Commission. And often we act as though the gospel is just for right here. 
It's right here. But you guys have been here long enough to know, we've taught you and discipled you, hopefully well enough for you to understand the gospel from the Abrahamic covenant on the Great Commission is that people from all nations, all people groups, would be represented in the kingdom of God. And the way that happens is through the preaching of the gospel to those people groups. And so Jesus says, Matthew 28, 19 to 20, Go, there, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Restating the Abrahamic covenant, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And this is great. This is a part of the Great Commission we just often don't focus on. All nations, yes. Baptize, teach, yes. But then he says, and behold, look, I am with you always to the end of the age. I know this is not the intention of, of, of most but we often act as though somehow we can leave Jesus behind if we go. And the reason I say that is because many churches just don't go. We may have a great local presence, but if we don't have a global presence, we're failing at the mission. The mission isn't just to build the church locally and have a great representation locally. It is that all nations would have representation before the throne of God through the preaching of the gospel to those people. We have Jesus' personal fellowship and protection. The resurrected Christ said this in Matthew. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. You know who's in charge of birds dying? Jesus. You know what that means? That you can be in the most unreached place on the face of the planet. And if it's not your time... You are invincible. Wow. Do you know what that means? That means we have Jesus' personal fellowship and protection. Behold, I'm with you always. So when we walk off the plane at that airport in our people group, and everything's different. They don't speak your language. Things smell funny. And there are lots of guns pointed in your direction. You are invincible. Jesus is with you. He's with you. Not a bird falls to the ground apart from the Father. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations. The resurrected Christ. The implication is that His body would take this mission of Jonah to Nineveh. Of Jesus to all nations. And in a supernatural, powerful, protective presence of Christ. We would preach the resurrection of Jesus to all nations. Meaning that if we don't have a people group presence, we're failing at the mission. Now the good news is we do. We do. And I want to remind you that it is no waste. When we spend the majority of our time and effort and energy there. It's the mission. What good is it to gather a crowd. If all we're doing is ministering to the crowd. And there's no outlet where they don't know his name. That's not the mission. The mission is that what we know here would go global. That all people groups. All nations would hear, respond, and believe so that what we see in Revelation comes true that before the throne of Christ, all nations gathered and they're worshiping Jesus. 
people this week getting jacked up about the blood moon and the end of the world. And I just had to remind them, Matthew 24, 14. This gospel will be preached in all nations and then the end will come. Go to joshuaproject.net. We've got a long way to go. No end coming today. No end coming today. Still many places where the gospel's never been. How cool would it be if today the Spirit of God spoke to fellowships and gave them a specific people group and they started spending their resources preaching the gospel where it's never been? You see, that's an outworking of the resurrection. We often don't think of the resurrection with missions and a missions emphasis, but that's exactly what's happening. King Jesus has gone before. King Jesus is making his presence known. And King Jesus is raising up laborers to go and preach the gospel so that ears can hear, be awakened to life, and believe. In our people group, it's happening today. The enemy is scratching hard. The team is under duress. And the reason they are is because Jesus is alive. The reason they're there is because Jesus is alive. And so I say to you, Three Rivers Community Church, don't lose heart. There are dark days ahead with the mission. We're in the middle of some dark days. But the gospel is going forward. Muslims are seeing and hearing and believing. Because that's an implication of the resurrection. So what's happening locally, let us not forget that what God has put at least part of my purpose in this life, and one of the reasons you'll hear this from my mouth over and over again, and you may, you probably get sick of hearing it, is the gospel's got to be global. He's alive. And the implication is we've got to go global. So I'm going to ride that horse in front of pastors until they get sick of me, don't ask me to come back. And I hope you will do the same thing. And when you get a chance to talk about this glorious gospel, make sure, even to our brothers and sisters in the faith, that maybe you go to them. You believe Jesus is alive? Well, what are you doing with that globally? Where have you been? Right? And just maybe, how cool would it be if 7,000 churches today, the Lord spoke to them and they adopted 7,000 different people groups? Dude, we're getting close then. Them blood moons might be meaning something. We're like, ooh, ooh. Is it coming? I don't know. We're getting close. How cool would that be? He's alive, y'all. And these implications are glorious for us. Let's worship Jesus. He is alive and and He's here. He's present among His people. Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, we come before You to give thanks to You today for this glorious truth of the resurrection. Jesus, You truly are alive. And we believe that. And You have brought us to believe that. And we... um, I thank You for that glorious truth today. And and I... um, My heart is full of confidence that you are alive. I've never been more convinced than I am at this moment that what we have believed is true. So I thank you for that today. Resurrected Jesus, I pray that you would move in the hearts of your people. Holy Spirit, do that work of building confidence. Counsel, teach, and instruct. I pray that you would I pray that you would today do that work of confidence in the heart of your people. But I also pray, Father, for those who may have been on the edge, aren't sure, doubts are maybe ruling their heart, that you would rescue them from doubt, build trust, faith would be become rich and real and thick. For those, Father, who do not believe, I pray that you would blow the wind of the Holy Spirit through their life, awaken them to life, Cause them to see and savor Jesus. Remove the veil of unbelief that the evil one has placed. Help them, Lord, that they may confess Jesus as the Christ and believe and by believing have life in his name. Would you do that today? 
pray you do that all over this town, all over this world. Jesus, be exalted and be glorified among us today.